0: my goal was with drinking was to kind of black out a second before my head hit the pillow so that I didn't ever have to be alone with myself. It was my worst fear. First step, we admitted powerlessness over alcohol. And I thought, oh, I can't go to AA because I still have a little bit of power. Like I, I know there's a point in my day where I'm deciding to drink. So I guess I'm not powerless, you know, and in my head that felt like reason. It felt like logic. And I was, I was afraid to go to AA wrongly, but at the time I was afraid to go because I thought someone might tell me, you're not bad enough to be here. When you quit, every time you want a drink, what you're really asking yourself is for comfort. So if you can invent 10 other comforts to offer yourself, because you've just got blinders on. You've just trained yourself that there's only one thing you want, which is alcohol. So if you can think of other ways to offer comfort, um, then that you have an arsenal, you know? For the longest time when I was out for walks and my dad would come to mind, I would actually swear at him and say, get the F away from me right now. I don't wanna think about you. I'm enjoying my walk. You don't get to come on this walk with me. I'm still mad at you. At some point, you know, I could, say, okay, you get five minutes. I'm going to listen to you. And so I I don't think that I, I don't, I don't have a belief system that makes me feel like he's with me. And this is an actual conversation to me. This is healing. That's taking place in my mind and my heart, but some people, their belief system might be that that's, that is a real conversation. So respectfully for whatever people believe, I think it allows me to show up in that relationship. And so even though I didn't get what I wanted in terms of healing that relationship before he died. I have had some healing and expect it to continue to heal. I have room. I have capacity for continued healing. And to me, that's one more reason to stay sober, you know, is so that we can keep growing and healing in this way.
1: Hey, sober people and sober adjacent people. Welcome to I Have 12 Questions. I'm Amanda Patton, your host, the leading expert on nothing. However, I am in recovery and I love it so much so that I launched this podcast where we get to talk to people who are trudging the road to happy freaking destiny across all the different ways that people get there. So while this is definitely through the lens of recovery and sobriety, the stories and the themes that we'll be covering are universally Human. So love, loss, grief, excitement, parenting, outside issues, purpose, God stuff, whatever. In the words of the great Ted Lasso by way of Walt Whitman, I wanna be curious, not judgmental. So like I said, we'll be talking to people in recovery. We're gonna be talking to experts and practitioners who help those people along their path in recovery. And we're just really excited to hear people tell their stories and to be inspired by them and to create a community of support for everybody in recovery and people who know and love people who struggle with addiction issues and whatnot. So anyways, we're so glad you're here and thanks for listening. Hey, listeners, just a quick disclaimer before we get into the interview. The views and opinions expressed by those interviewed on I Have 12 Questions or myself are just opinions and our own personal experiences. We are not doctors or therapists or psychiatrists, so none of the recommendations or opinions expressed should be considered medical or psychological advice. There may be adult language contained in some of these episodes, as well as triggers around conversations regarding rape, sexual abuse, drug and alcohol usage, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and many other uh, topics that will come up when we are discussing addiction and recovery from addiction. So please use discretion. This podcast is not for everybody. Thank you. All right. Hello. Hello, everyone. So before I get started, let me just say that I literally cannot believe who our guest is today. I Honestly, I can't believe it. I always say I'm the luckiest person I know. Um, but she started the Unpickled blog in 2011 to anonymously document her own journey of becoming alcohol-free. And nowadays, she recovers out loud and on camera in the hopes of inspiring still more people who may want to also live an alcohol-free life. She's the author of several books, notably Take Good Care, Unpickled, Prepare to Be Alcohol-Free, the book, and The Ember Ever There. And she's a musician and a bunch of other stuff. She's been a trailblazer in the alcohol-free community for years. And her contributions have helped people who are you know, all over the spectrum of you know, how we our relationship is with alcohol, from alcoholics addicts at rock bottom to people who are sober curious, Uh, Maybe to people who are just tired of their attachment to alcohol. Um, And so the Bubble Hour podcast is very well known in the recovery community and loved in the sober community. And she joined the show as co-host in season two and became the sole host and producer in season five. Um, And it just wrapped up its 10th season. So I've been clean and sober about the exact same amount of time that the podcast has been out. And this podcast has saved my ass. I cannot even tell you guys how many times these, these conversations have reminded me of my why. Um, and also the diversity of her guests and their approaches to being alcohol free has appealed to me, and it's kept it kept it fresh. Um, but it also also showed me how sobriety obviously it has to do with drinking, but it has to do with so much more than that um, about our intentionality. And so the tools that we have to actually apply to live an alcohol free life um, and and keep you know maintaining that are covered in her podcast and her blog and her book so beautifully. So that was a lot, but it's because she is doing and has done a lot. So Jean McCarthy, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Longest longest intro ever. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much. So, okay. I have to have an icebreaker question, as you know. So if if your life had a theme song, what would it be?
0: So I was thinking about this and I was concocting in my head some kind of like remix of Ricky Lee Jones and Taylor Swift and (laughs) cake, you know, and then I thought, wait a minute. um, I actually wrote the theme songs for my life (laughs) because I have um, two albums. So maybe I should choose something of my own. Um, The theme music from the Bubble Hour is called I Own It. And that's a song that I wrote and recorded in 2008 when I was in active addiction. And so I, it's like a recovery anthem, but I didn't even know that I needed at the time, you know, it was about just kind of owning my junk. And wow. when I got sober and then listened to that song again, I realized, oh, this really has <laughs> this has new meaning for me now. Um, and then there's another song I wrote. Um, I have an album from 2007. There's a song on there called Grace, and it is about just the idea of like, sometimes we want to do the right thing and you just need a little grace, like a little nudge from the universe to get you over the hump and get you started. And that song still just speaks to my heart because as it turned out, you know, those, those were things that unfolded in my life. And so it was almost kind of predictive, maybe the way that the way I wrote them and how what they came to mean to me over time.
1: That's wild. They were prophetic. I didn't know that they were written or it during active addiction because I know that I song know. plays at the beginning of every show, you know, so I yeah. feel like I know it. My heart at this point. Um, well, I want to start by reading one of, from one of your books and it's um Unpickled, Prepare to be alcohol-free, and uh you say that it was initially meant to be a short-term tool for accountability. Um, well, that was that was the blog Unpickled. Um, and it grew into this worldwide hub of support. Um, and so like when, when I was reading through your book, there's a lot of like very practical things that I never, I wish somebody would have told me this stuff. I wish somebody would have said these things to me early on. Um, but in the book, you, you just come right out of the gate with, um, I mean, I love the introduction. I just love the whole thing. I've I've read through it a couple times now, but it's it's find your why words, um, and you encourage your readers to find your why words to kind of reframe their reasons. Um, and in yours, you talk about authenticity being one of your you know one of your why words, um, and I'm wondering, kind of just, can you tell us about that? Why authenticity? What is why is that it for you? Or why was that one of the things
0: initially, you know, it, it's funny how that idea of authenticity hasn't wavered a whole lot for me over nearly 12 years. Next, next, this month, it'll be 12 years that I've been sober. Um, and I know, like, I love that. I love being able to say that. The thing is, at, at first I, I realized that I, I, I knew I wasn't being authentic and I wanted to be more authentic because I really that imposter syndrome feeling that a lot of women feel challenged by, Mm. I think I was drinking to numb the discomfort of not feeling in alignment and feeling like I wasn't, that I had kind of built up this public persona that was very heavy to carry. I felt like I never got to be myself and I felt ashamed of who I really was and um and then you get sober and then you're like embarrassed that, that i was sober which is kind of dumb now i'm proud of it but but i was i wasn't embarrassed to be sober i was embarrassed that i needed to get sober you know because right. it felt like it felt like a failure that everyone else can handle alcohol and i couldn't and um now the way i see it is a little different i think what i understand is that the addiction to alcohol the dependence on alcohol was really a symptom of the inauthenticity. And sobriety is when we put down our addiction, whatever it is. Recovery is when we heal the reasons behind it. And so when I quit drinking, when I got sober, it gave me space to heal what needed healing. And for me, that was becoming authentic and becoming really integrated and aligned and feeling that I always am, or as much as I possibly can be, I am authentically me and I'm not changing masks depending on who I'm sitting in front of.
1: Wow. Wow. Sobriety Mm -hmm. is when we put down the thing and recovery is when we heal the reason. That's, that's huge. That gave me, that gave me chills. Okay. So my (laughs) second question, I mean, it's just, yes. The second thing I want to ask you about. So on page seven, wow. I'm, I'm turning into my mother where I have to do this thing.
0: I have to wear um, readers to do on camera interviews because even from here, I can't, you know, see the screen. So I
1: have, so. <laughs> have contacts where I can see further away, but not, yes, it's very, uh, it's a lot. You're entering into that stage. <laughs> yeah. Fun times. Um, on page seven, you talk about labels, and I, I thought this was just, and you talk about it a lot on your show too. I mean, there are very specific conversations around people's different experiences with different words and, and the semantics and the language. And, um, it's fascinating. It is human nature is fascinating. And so you're talking about how, you know, we're accustomed to hearing the words, alcoholic, sober addiction in hushed tones, right? There's this like stigma or shame or secrecy about it. Cause like you were saying, it's, you feel embarrassed. Like I should be able to handle that. I'm a very smart, accomplished person. Why can't I that type of stuff? Um, and so, and then you kind of talk a little bit about the the differences of the words and maybe what they mean. Um, and part of me, when I was reading this felt a little bit defensive of AA dogma, just because that's the world I come from. Right. And yeah. it's like, no, you have to say like, I'm Amanda, I'm an alcoholic, like never forget who, what you are and who you are. It's very, very much tied into like your identity. So I, part of me was like, wait a second. Um, and then the other part of me felt so encouraged by how we get to call it whatever we want, you know? Yeah. Um, and also on page 25, which I feel like is related, uh, to this exact same thing. Cause again, it's semantics, but, um, but it's powered versus empowered, sorry, powerless versus empowered. And it made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, just because I, I'm scared to think that I'm in control of anything, Um, because then what if my will comes back and I start strong arming situations, or I think I can control my drinking again. And because I've been conditioned to believe that that's very dangerous for me. Um, however, empowerment just means that I do make these choices, right? And that's kind of what you go into, um, where you're saying it's possible to be physically addicted to alcohol and still retain a feeling of empowerment right, that that these things can coexist. Um, And it illuminated for me my black and white thinking, right? It's you're either all this or all that. Well, that's not true. That's not right, right? These things can be um, coexisting. So my question to you is what is your experience with how the language and semantics around all of this encourages or limits people's ability um, to live an alcohol-free life? Because you've been doing this for a long time. I'm sure you have have. really good
0: insights. Yeah. And my brain used language to keep me drinking for a long time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this book is called Prepare to Be Alcohol Free. So it's Mm -hmm. about things you can be thinking about before you quit to help remove some of the roadblocks that are either going to potentially trip you up in your early recovery or prevent you from quitting. So the reason I want people to think about language is because it's one of those things that our addiction leverages to keep us drinking. And for me, that meant when I thought, oh, I, I know I have a problem with alcohol. I wonder if I should go to AA. So then I, I'm like, well, what are those 12 steps? So I looked them up. First step, we admitted powerlessness over alcohol. And I thought... Oh, I can't go to AA. Cause I still have a little bit of power. Like I, I know there's a point in my day where I'm deciding to drink. So I guess I'm not powerless, you know, and in my head that felt like reason it felt like logic. And I was, I was afraid to go to AA wrongly, but at the time I was afraid to go because I thought someone might tell me you're not bad enough to be here you're not powerless. Mm. You're not, you know, cause I also like I, your brain just plays so many tricks on itself. So I, and on the one hand, I kind of thought I was better than your average alcoholic, whatever that was. Cause I was misusing the the label of alcoholic as kind of a generic phrase to mean not me. So, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, Someone I else. don't know what I am, but that's those other people, whoever they are there that are worse than me. Right. Um, And, and I also kind of had it as like a destination that I needed to hit before I could quit. Like I kind of felt like it was a diagnosis that I had to hit before I could quit. None of those things are right. Those are all mind games. I was playing on myself. Those were word games. My addicted brain was dancing around to justify drinking. And when we're in that contemplative stage, like when we're kind of starting to think about quitting, but we're not there yet. That's when I really aimed this book for is for people who are thinking about quitting or in the early stages of quitting. It's a time when we're really, um, in denial and really, um, kind of blocked off from ourselves going back to authenticity, right? We're being kind of inauthentic, inauthentic, help me inauthentic. There we go. Yeah. I was like, hold on. And, and we're kind of like we're blinding ourselves to our own truths because alcohol does that. It numbs us to truth, but also becomes very painful to look inside. And for me, anyway, that was something I was really drinking to avoid. I didn't want to lay my head down at the end of the day and be alone with my thoughts. I stayed busy all day so that I didn't have to be alone with myself. And at some point I had to go to sleep, you know, and you, 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 busy 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 and then you go to bed and then i would lay there and torture myself by thinking about how awful i was so drinking helped me um try to bypass that time of day if i if i did it right what my goal was with drinking was to kind of black out a second before my head hit the pillow so that i didn't ever have to be alone with myself it was my worst fear wow. and so this book really is an invitation to gently bring you back to yourself and become honest with yourself about the words you're using, about the words you're afraid of, about the way your mind plays with words to kind of trick you and powerless or or um, not powerful. The whole point is it's okay to choose that. And if you're in a program that says, this is how we use the language here. This is what it means in this room. Then you go into that program agreeing, this is how I'm going to apply the language. But if you're like me and saying, oh, I'm gonna try maybe to do this without a program, then that's okay if you wanna try that. But decide mindfully, thoughtfully, what is the language? What do you want? And if if you think I don't want to be sober, I don't want to say I'm sober. Fine, say you're alcohol free. Say you're a non-drinker. Um, what are the parameters you want to put around this? And I think the point, really, for but throughout this book is just that invitation to look inside and and think about things for yourself, and then remember what you've decided, so that. If something does start to go wrong or wobble or not feel quite right, you can go back to that decision and say, Hmm, maybe I need to reconsider this, you know, maybe this, maybe this label that I chose, I've got more information now. Maybe I feel differently about it, you know? So powerlessness versus empowered, um, smart recovery takes that empowered approach where it says you can do something, you know, you don't have to wait until you feel powerless. Right. Be empowered by breaking up with booze. Now be empowered by becoming a non-drinker. That perspective from AA is saying it's kind of the, just the other side of the same coin. You know, we were powerless over alcohol, alcohol, like I'm addicted to alcohol. I can't fix that. That's a brain change that is, you know, not really reversible. So yeah. it's kind of a, just a different way of looking at the same thing. If the language is keeping you from quitting drinking, adapt the language, because the important thing is to take control of your relationship with alcohol in whatever way works for you. I love that so much. It's so true. It's so spacious. And even in AA
1: meetings, secular, traditional, whatever, I hear people all the time, they don't even identify anymore as alcoholic. Say I'm a person in recovery or I'm, you know, so even even in that environment, there's got to be that flexibility. Um, And I like how you break it out in the book, talking about colloquialisms versus medical terms versus alternatives. And we use a lot of people use all of those interchangeably, um, which is fine. Right. But they don't really mean the same thing technically. Or maybe they do, depending on who you're around. Um, And I just I usually just say things like I'm in, in recovery. But then sometimes I don't want people to ask me questions. So I just say I don't drink and early on it was, Oh, I'm on an antibiotic or, Oh, I'm preparing for a, a race. You know, I'm, I'm eating really clean and not drinking right now. It was all these things. And then eventually I was just like, I don't drink,
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it's easy. But if you say, if you're, if you're around a bunch of people say in a 12 step environment, I say that I say, hi, I'm Gina. I'm an alcoholic when I'm with my AA yeah. friends because I know what that means to them. But if I said mm-hmm. that out of, you know, a family reunion, well, they don't know what that means. They're like, right. I don't know. Are you active? Are you in trouble? Are you okay? Are you on a yeah. day pass from rehab? They don't understand how that right. term is used. So
1: context yeah. is everything. Context is everything. So on page uh, on page four, I believe it is, let me go back and make sure, I've got this whole book marked up, um, talking about patterns. And this is huge. And again, I wish I had known, I wish I had had this book you know, either before I got sober or while I was getting sober, AA does have something uh, called living sober, and it's just sort of a more practical. But it's nothing like this. This is like I love plans and I love checklists, and this is like this is that's what this is. You know, <laughs> that you're talking about. you're saying this is um, you know. I didn't do this. I wasn't asked to do this, but I love the suggestions you make of taking a pen to paper and even a color-coded calendar to make things real because in our minds, they make perfect sense. Everything makes great sense in my head until I put a pen to paper or I talk to someone else about it and I'm like, oh, I don't know. Am I even being honest with myself? Mm -hmm. Um, And also understanding how alcohol becomes such an ingrained ritual just because, just because it's the end of the workday or just because it's, you know, saturday lunchtime with your friends or or whatever um are you wanting or needing to drink at that moment no but it's just it's what we do and so it becomes that um and then eventually some people do get dependent chemically you know bodily on it um or they associate that with fun and so there's all these things that our minds will do like you said um and the the social anxiety, you know, personal conflict, loneliness. Like these are, it's just so crazy. All the patterns and the things that you bring up to just make sure that we're being honest with ourselves and asking ourselves questions. Cause these aren't big abstract theoretical things. These are like, this is what we do on a daily basis. This is real life. And so it just feels very applicable. It feels doable because it's Mm -hmm. real and it's relatable. So, um, my question here is, since you stopped drinking, did you, did you see other patterns pop up in your life similar? Um, and did you like, did you use your same system maybe on other patterns? I can't think of an example, but you know, have you seen that? Cause for me, when I stopped drinking other things morphed and it was like whack-a-mole, it was like all these other yeah. things were popping up. Um, but I can see using this system and applying it to pretty much anything.
0: Yeah. I think that it's part of, again, it kind of comes back to that recovery process. And it's something i learned really through therapy was that I just thought if I thought something, it was true. If I felt something, it was real. If I did something, it was justified. And Mm. instead to kind of realize that, As humans, we all have these predictable patterns and that if I, if I look and look for patterns, I can see where I maybe am doing something that's not specifically horrible to me, but predictably human response to being uncomfortable or to being, um, I don't know, just some part of the human experience. So uh, like, I'll give you an example, because this is a, this is a great example. Um, I realized that my husband used to go on this big golf trip every year and it was right around the time when the big, um, black Thursday, some of this black Friday, black Friday, cyber Monday (laughs) sales were on and I would be home alone and I was sober, but I would order all this stuff online. And then he'd get back from his trip and I would be really embarrassed as all these packages were arriving and I wouldn't even remember having bought them. And I remember doing it, like I remember kind of spotting this pattern that, hey, you know what I'm doing? I'm consoling my, not just loneliness, but kind of maybe a resentment that he was away on a trip. Mm-hmm. by shopping online. And I, and because I was doing it alone at home, I felt unseen. And one thing I've learned about myself was that because I really wasn't authentic and didn't just didn't value myself a whole lot. I had this idea. This was mind blowing for me when I realized it, but I had this idea that if nobody saw, then it wasn't real, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So uh, if, because I didn't value myself, so I didn't Consider that I saw it. Like if you, you saw me were, do we'll something, see, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, right. If if you saw it, then I would be embarrassed. But if I saw myself do it, who cares what I think? I'm I'm a nobody. So as I've come to feel more um, connected to myself and come to value me as a human and forgive myself for being human, um, I. I have started to hold myself accountable for the things that even only I know. And that was huge. So that's a kind of pattern that I realized. I also saw a pattern when it came to trouble with friends. I remember having these kind of like uh, friend breakups, I guess you would say with other yeah. women, like in my thirties and, um, And I felt like, wow, I've really had a string of bad luck with with people that I've trusted. And then right away thought, well, wait a minute, who's the common denominator in this problem? It's me. So, you know, maybe this is my pattern, not a series of of bad luck events. And that comes back to step work, right? That's that's one of the processes that happens in a 12-step program where you look at what's my role in things. And, you know, that's a really brilliant process too. So yeah, I think documenting patterns is so helpful. And when it comes to alcohol uh, or anything we're doing in in an addictive pattern, we're in quite an emotional relationship with that behavior. And so this book, again, this process is a way to take a step back and become really clinical with it and become really um, objective and I feel like it helps us come more in alignment with reality when we're a little less emotional and a little more real and honest with ourselves.
1: That's huge. I mean, that is just, that's huge. And it's it's like, our, I, I can only speak for myself. My mind will do anything to justify and protect a habit that I am using to comfort myself. Yeah. Anything. And it makes perfect sense to me because it's my own brain coming up with it. So of course, but like you're saying, if you get out of that, whatever that is, and you put a pen to paper and you start really tracking to where you can zoom out and look at it and say, um, but I would never think of that because I always thought I would just figure it out with my own brain, you know, that desperately wanted me to keep drinking or keep shopping or, you know. Or patterns in relationships, like oh wow, I'm the one person who's consistently been here through all these relationships. (laughs) 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 Also, the one person I have control over. So, (laughs) the one person, yeah. And like, yes, that's that's just man, that's profound. Okay, so psychology. Um, It's human nature to lose perspective on our habits, and you say that we often rationalize potentially harmful routines by downplaying the risk, you know, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a recurring theme throughout the stories I've heard in your show, um, whether they were authors or people telling their own personal stories and just all across the board. Um, Or, you know, AA, obviously. And that's just like, that that is a very recurring theme of like, you just don't think it's that bad. Um, Right. And you also talk about, you know, how, how people, I don't know, surround themselves with, uh, other people or it, it, to where your life starts to be arranged around certain patterns or behaviors, maybe not intentionally, mm-hmm. but it just sort of ends up that way over time. Right.
0: Like if, um, you're, if you want to be drinking all the time, you're, you're not going to be hanging out with non-drinkers. Nope. You you, you start to self-select people that are either like you or worse than you so that you can justify your behavior and maybe even um, hide your behavior a little bit. And, um, yeah, we sort of slide into it. And then we think, well, all my friends drink. Well, yeah, (laughs) because they're the only ones (laughs) we call. (laughs) Um, Well, and I love the
1: fact that you even break it down into. I mean, I just love, I love logic. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's not my friend because I like, I can use logic to stay out of my heart space. And that's something that I always have to work on. But when it comes down to this, you're literally listing out ounces and measuring and like put your normal pour into a glass and go look at what a glass of wine means to you (laughs) versus, Yeah. yeah, right. Um, so I'm talking about the psychology and the friends and just the habits and everything like that. But, um, you know, a lot of times we can't see ourselves, which is why community is such a crucial part of sobriety. Um, However you do it, you know, or an alcohol-free lifestyle, just some system of support, community, accountability, the ability to show up for other people, you know, all that stuff. And so Mm -hmm. my question to you is, do you have support in your life? The answer has to be yes, but I want to hear about it. Do you have support (laughs) in your life because you give so much support to so many others? Um, A lot of times, caretakers maybe they don't have anybody because people are always coming to you for advice. So who's your support? What does that look like in your recovery or in your alcohol free life?
0: It's morphed over the years. The first two years I was sober. I only used online support because I was anonymous. I wrote my blog anonymously at first and little by little, like I added my first name and then I added my photo and then I kind of realized, Oh, you know, the people that I do business with in my community aren't reading this only people that are searching sober blogs are finding me. So I got more and more brave about coming out, but the, at first it was just the blogosphere because, you know, 12 years ago, blogging was more of the thing. And there was a lot of communication through the comments and stuff. So that was really quite lovely, but something interesting happened when I was six months sober, I was at a conference, uh, for my industry, which was home building. And one of the speakers who was talking about technology, I was at a presentation, and this kind of quasi Canadian tech celebrity was doing a a talk, and he happened to mention that he was sober, like just in passing, in his in his um, presentation. And so I'm sitting with all my peers in the you know audience in a breakout room at a conference, and I'm just like so excited because. I'm in the room with another sober person. Now, statistically, you know, at this conference of a couple thousand people, there was probably, I don't know, statistically, 100, 200 people, maybe, I don't know. For sure, there was a few. No, there should, be, there should have been maybe 20 or something, right? Okay. But here, was, here I knew I was in the room with someone who was sober. And I had this idea of like, oh, I'm going to go and tell him, after I'm just going to go and tell him I'm sober too. And, and that I, I think it was, had just been my six months or somehow I was like, this is my little six month gift to myself. is that I'm going to tell this guy that I'm sober. And I've never told another person except, you know, just family members, friends, a few, a very few people knew. Wow. So, um, I did. I went up to him afterwards and after everyone left the room and I did this little, like, hi, um, I'm Jean. And I just, yeah, I love your talk. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I just wanted to tell you that, um, uh, I I'm sober too. I'm just like six months. I just had my six months and this guy, okay. This surprised me, but it won't surprise you. Um, he went, and he like threw his arms open and he gave me a hug and he said, six months is huge. That's amazing. I'm so happy for you. And like, I was just delighted and so taken aback and in the most pleasant way. And yeah. it just, it made me realize this is why people go to meetings. This is why community is so helpful I definitely got that online dopamine hit from people commenting on my blog and from that exchange. That was helpful, but I realized that there was something transcendent about human to human contact. And that carried me forward. And I, from that moment knew I want some sober friends. I don't know how to get them. I don't know I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I want this and I'm going to try to find this in my life. And so, uh, I, and little by little I have, and so at first it was reaching out online and I would actually drive to another town to meet people. Um, if I hadn't been so scared to go to an AA meeting in my own community, I would have found out to my delight that that happens in those rooms quite effortlessly and it's not scary. Mm. And, um, you know, I kind of thought I was too big of a deal. Like I thought, oh, everybody's going to know it's me. And um, when I did finally go to an AA meeting in my community, like, like nobody knew or cared who I was. You know, <laughs> they just thought I was there. They they didn't care who I thought I was. They cared who I really. Right, liked, right, right. Which is even better. Um, yeah. So yeah. So yes, I have in person support in my community. I actually go to a women's 12 step group. And on the first day I went in and said, listen, I've been sober for a long time, many years, not using this program, but I want friends. Is it okay for me to sit at your table? Am I welcome here if I'm not, you know, super invested in this program or walking this path? And they were like, yes, it's, it's take what you can use and leave the rest. If fellowship is the only thing you want to use, you're welcome to come and use that. Uh, you're here because you want to be a non drinker and we all get what that's like. So that has been great. They are such, such lovely women, such great friends. And I adore that. And then I have lots of friends that I've met literally around the world, Amanda from blogging and podcasting. And I, when I've traveled, I've posted, Hey, I'm going to be in Italy on vacation. Anyone in Italy? And then uh, a listener messaged me and said, yeah, I'm in Italy. I'll meet you for a coffee in Rome when you're here. And I heard that. Um, I think I heard you talk about that on one of the episodes, uh, the farewell
1: that as you were going through. And yeah, it was incredible. A trip. Absolutely Across incredible. The
0: world. Yeah. And so yes. I, yeah, I've met people all over the world when I, I mean, I'm not a global traveler, but really I have, when I do travel, um, I can always connect with people. And you don't have to be a blogger or a podcaster to do this. You know, you can always go to a recovery meeting of any stripe and just say, I'm from out of town and I, you know, I I might not be part of this program, but I'm visiting your community and I, I just want to connect with other people that are, you know, on this path. And uh, yeah, you, you're always, that's always available. It's really a surprisingly welcome community. I did not realize that when I quit drinking, I had no idea, but a lot of us, um, find that helping others helps us stay on our path. It's, it yes. is one of the steps in a 12 step program, but even yes. for people that aren't in that program, just helping others helps you and feels good and it's lovely. So it, it really we- is such a nice community.
1: Yeah, it really is. And so welcoming And we are uniquely qualified not only to understand other non-drinkers, but to hopefully be helpful. And a lot of us dependent, you know, a lot of us feel judged or misunderstood by society because they look at you and go, why do you? And if you had a really high bottom, maybe your life never got like that. But for a lot of us who were arrested and literally destroying our lives in front of our families and people who knew us to be very capable at work or, you know, They're just, they don't get it. They love you. They want you to get better. They want to help, but they, they don't understand. I didn't understand myself. You know, it's confusing. Why can't I figure this out? You know, and then you walk into a room of people or a society of people who are like, yeah, me too. And then you're like, okay, this feels good. And people love you immediately just because they identify.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. And I have to do the caveat of saying, if you are meeting people, online, you know, do all the safety things, right. right. right in public, <laughs> <you're good. laughs> And, and not, not everyone at a recovery meeting is going to be healthy. They're not all necessarily going to be in a healed stage of sobriety or recovery. So it's not like, it's not a guarantee um, right. that you're going to be friends. You're going to like them, whatever. But generally speaking, it's a welcoming community and yes. Uh, Yeah. I've always just like meet in public, meet for coffee, meet a few people. It's incredible and helpful and fun. I
1: was going to say that too, though, of like, um, even over the years of going to AA meetings, I have found what works for me and what doesn't. It's almost like a franchise. Every single instance that you walk into is totally different based on who you're around, geographically where you are, how healthy that meeting is. A lot of meetings are toxic. You've, you know, uh, there are individuals who may be dangerous or unhealthy in any environment, including recovery. So like, like you're saying, you've I was very naive and I thought that anyone in AA was working the program to the best of their ability and that we were all healthy, well-adjusted people who had everyone's best interest at heart. And that <laughs> I had to learn maybe that wasn't the case. But I started going to more women's meetings. I know where I feel comfortable. I know where I feel safe. I know what works for me. And I had to shop meetings for a long time to find, to find my people um, online Mm -hmm. and regular. But I love how you talk about your transition from online and only anonymously to slowly revealing parts of your identity to then sort of easing into, because I think COVID brought in a lot of people who would never have gone into a regular in-person meeting and they started experimenting with zoom and over time got comfortable enough to go, to go walk into a meeting somewhere. And that's cool Mm -hmm. because some people need that time to ease, um, in when I got sober, I don't, I don't remember online meetings really being a thing. Maybe they were, but,
0: um, I think it's pretty new. I I think it's pretty new and it, you know, it, it occurs to me, too, like my husband's a golfer. So whenever we travel, he goes to a golf course and walks on as a single player. And there's always a group of three that has room for a fourth. He always comes away from vacation, having made new friends and spent four hours with people that are like minded. Uh, so, cool, right. It's people that are religious might go to a church in another community and find a similarity, but you also know that like, okay, but not everybody in that church is going to be for you just because they go to the same church. And so I, it's, it's, it's kind of just another way to have common interest, but yeah, it's, isn't it just so comfortable to sit in a room full of people who, you know, get it, who they also this week, you know, face the whole week with this same monkey on their back, surrounded by people who, don't know or whatever, you know, like that, that yes. common experience without even saying it just feels so good. It does.
1: It really does. Well, thank you for talking us through that. Cause I really wanted to hear kind of how you found your own support. So the parallels with other programs can't be denied. I feel like, you know, a lot of us, are saying the same things in different ways, essentially, but you, your book and your show and just everything, your blog leaves everything open and flexible, um, to where people can explore and they can ask questions and they can see what feels comfortable. And then like you were saying, adjust, adjust as you learn more information, then you can make adjustments along the way. Um, and you also go beyond the foundational changes in thinking that have to occur to eliminate alcohol. Um, so when you're talking about some of the things that brought in scaffolding for you, if you will, it's like rituals um, on page 47, self-talk on page 41, um, creating comfort zones, you know, and you're very specific about how do we do these things? How do we actually do it? So I like it again, because it's not this big theoretical idea. And then you have to go figure out what that even means for you. It's, this is literally kind of a this is how you can do it you know
0: um having a plan i want it to be really practical really pragmatic yeah. and self directed having a plan um what to do on a saturday
1: um and we in aa too take your own car let someone know you're there go with someone sober. if you can like there has to be a plan in place because just to protect yourself from yourself, right? Um, mm-hmm. And how to navigate social events where drinking will be happening. Um, exploring creativity, finding more support. So, were, was all this discovered by trial and error for you? Like, is every is most of what's in the book kind of your personal experience, or and or oh, it's probably also collected from
0: other people you've talked to? Where does it all yeah. come from? Definitely collected wisdom, I think. You know, on the bubble hour, I tried to count uh, there's 350 episodes, but I think there were so many guests on some of those episodes. Probably there's like close to a thousand individuals that, um, whose stories I got to hear and tons of online groups and uh, retreats I've been to and comments on my blog. So I, what I was really trying to bring together are the things that I commonly heard tripped people up in early sobriety. So how many people have said I've had a thousand day ones? Well, for me, my thousand day ones were first of all, because every afternoon I found a reason to drink because I didn't realize that what felt like an urgent reason to drink was me being in withdrawal. So when I, when I, I wrote about that, right? Like understand your pattern, know what your day is like and understand that when you are telling yourself, oh, I have to drink today because this is happening. Actually, you're probably in withdrawal and your body is probably demanding alcohol uh, in response to that because you've conditioned it that that's the cure for feeling that way. So now that you know that, you know, how can, how do you feel about that? And know that when you quit, you are going to feel this way. So now you know that you don't have to experience it yourself, or when you do experience it yourself, you can call it what it is and you can overcome these little obstacles. So these are all tricks. The thing about creating comfort zones in your house was uh, a guest on the bubble hour. in one of my first years on that show, and uh, a woman named Erin told the story that I loved about how, when she was just a few days sober, she was hosting her entire family for Thanksgiving, which is really big in the US. And she couldn't get out of it because, you know, it, it was such a long standing plan that she was going to host all these family members who were all drinkers. But she didn't know when she made that plan that she was going to get sober just days before that. So what she did (laughs) for herself was she had a walk-in closet and she built herself a little nest on the floor, pillows, blankets, water bottle, podcasts, magazines, snacks. And she kept excusing herself from her own party to go to her closet (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and take a time out and just like breathe and just do something nice for herself to get her through these cravings. And she stayed sober through that event by going to this little nest in her closet. And I loved that idea so much. I and it. Um, that I started realizing that, okay, so when I go to a party and I feel overwhelmed What if I just like say, is it okay if I just go make a phone call in your guest room, you know, and, and like claim a little bit of real estate for myself. And then I learned, um, from doing that, that when I host a party, I always make sure there's a quiet place for people to go. I have a family member who is neurodivergent. So if he's coming to a family event at our house, I always make sure when he walks in, I say, Hey, just so you know, there's a there's a spot upstairs. If you want to get away from everybody, you know, there's a go to that corner upstairs. That's all set up for you. And you can spend as much time there as you want. And that's something I learned from being sober from God bless her, from this Aaron uh, lady and her story. So all of, yeah, these are all things I've picked up along the way. And the book isn't really so much, you must do all these things to get sober. It's more like flip around and like, try incorporating this, try incorporating that. Work your way through it, skip anything that feels really disingenuous, but all of it is intended to help you preempt things that typically catch people at, like not having plans on the weekend or feeling hurt when you're left out, or um, not knowing what to say when someone offers you alcohol. So you just say yes, because it comes out of your mouth before you can think about it. Like all of these things are just preemptive. And um, yeah, I've just heard so many stories of people whose best efforts were tripped up by these dumb little moments because they just Mm -hmm. didn't know. And yeah, now, you know.
1: It's so helpful. And I love, you know, my, my home is my sanctuary. And so this, you know, for me, like a tea ritual at night, they're just there. I meditate in the morning on a pillow. I burn my incense and my Palo Santo. And I have all these very comforting, but that's now that's like way into my recovery in the beginning. Um, it was more this practical stuff of, Hey, turn out the light in your kitchen at night. And you would light a candle, um, to signify, it's closed in there. And now we're going to go move to a different room or, you know, moving furniture around if that was always the chair that you drink in, or there's just so many, you know, real life applicable, uh, snuggling a pet. That's definitely one of my favorites, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Um, but I really, I really just the, the rituals, um, because drinking is such a ritual. Um, yeah. it becomes such a ritual for us and such a, such an automatic response. Yes. I'll take that drink or someone just hands it to you. And before you know it, you're sipping on it because you don't want to be rude or you feel uncomfortable. You don't know what else to say. Um, mm-hmm. so planning ahead and, and you know, also to your point, knowing you're going to
0: feel kind of crappy for a little bit, it's just going to be uncomfortable yeah. for a little bit, but it's not permanent. And I think the thing is that drinking becomes the only comfort we think of, you know, if you think that when you quit every time you want a drink, what you're really asking yourself is for comfort. So if you can invent 10 other comforts to offer yourself, because you've just got blinders on, you've just trained yourself that there's only one thing you want, which is alcohol. So if you can think of other ways to offer comfort, um, then that You have an arsenal, you know, and ritual sounds ritual sounds kind of religious. And I have to say that I I don't mean anything even like it doesn't have to be religious. My most effective ritual in early sobriety was setting up the coffee pot. So Mm -hmm. I would go and grind the beans and set up the coffee pot and set the timer, and then I would think like, Oh, I'm going to wake up in the morning. I'm going to be one more day sober and the coffee is going to be waiting for me, you know? And I, so it would give yes. me something to look forward to look forward like, to. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. It's, it's just,
1: uh, I love it. Okay. So the interviews you and your team have done over the years have been so diverse and interesting and honest. Um, and I've listened to some of them more than once. And I recently was listening or re-listening maybe to the Michael Blanchard one. I think it was back in 2020. And yeah. I literally had to like get off the trail with my dogs and go sit under a tree and cry. Um, you know, because sometimes stories are so visceral. It's just like, oh my God what just happened. Um, and his, his examples of real life addiction and recovery. And there was this explosive moment of gratitude too, of like, I used to have to look for a pill under my car seat too, to, to be able to get through the work day. Um, and now I'm out here on the, beautiful trail and I'm sober and my wife life is amazing. And it's just, it was one of those moments of perspective. Um, and it all came crashing in by just from listening to that story. Um, another was Jenny Dalton because she was talking about insight around honoring her father's death, um, with grieving, just, just grieving, you know? And when you were just talking earlier about that craving, sometimes it's just, we're just asking to be comforted. Um, and so alcohol is quick and easy and we think it's going to just, you know but it's not comforting it's actually covering up whatever it needed to be comforted right? right um yeah it's numbing numbing yeah and then later that same thing that needs to be comforted guess what it's gonna still it's still gonna be there um yeah so have there been have there been does a guest come to mind um that made you emotional or really hit you in the heart because maybe they were going through something that you were going through at the time too
0: yeah. Like almost every guest, I think, yeah. pierced my heart in one way or mm-hmm. another. But when I look back on him, I remember like really crying during one interview. And for some reason, I can't remember who it was, <laughs> but I had to actually like pause and collect myself. And I probably edited that out because um, I really wanted my show to be more about the guest than about me. Mm-hmm. Um which every show was different, but that was, that was something I did, but a lot of things have stood out to me over the year. Yeah. Ma- Michael Blanchard was a really great story because he turned to photography and became a photographer who combined essays about recovery with photographs and his work is stunning. Some little snapshots come to mind too. Like, um, one was, um, I interviewed, she's a recovery coach now, uh, Vanessa Klugman, who was a Chicago doctor who developed an addiction to pain medication after, I believe, dental surgery and ended up, uh, she told a story about visiting a patient in her home and stealing medication from the patient and being caught by the family and losing her license. Mm. And... Her willingness to tell that story just shook my bones because I just thought, wow, that that was such a a painful experience for her and something that I think is kind of titillating in a way, you know, and we hear about powerful people and fall from grace. But just when we when we just realize like the honesty that people are willing to Share to tell their stories always really moves me. Another one that comes to mind, you know, there's there's just these little moments. One guest named Ingrid told a story about being an overweight kid whose family was always kind of on her about her weight, and she had been she had snuck up into the snack cupboard to get a snack, and when she jumped down off the cupboard, this is awful. um, She accidentally landed on her dog and broke the dog's leg. And the shame spiral that that triggered for her, not only doing something she wasn't supposed to do, injuring, you know, a small animal that everybody loved, but also then the way it connected that trauma to Mm -hmm. secretly eating and feeling bad about her body and her weight as a little kid, and the way that that carried forward in her life, I've never forgot that story. And even telling it to you, I feel it in my body. It just really was heartbreaking. And then one other story that has always stayed with me and it speaks to the level of denial of the danger that we put ourselves in. Uh, an author named Carlin Pipes, who was a very um, successful competitive swimmer. And her book is called The Do-Over. And um, she talks about how she would get drunk and then go swim like train swimming for competition by swimming in the ocean. Um, gosh, she was somewhere in California, but she was in an area where like actual shipping containers and boats were coming and going. And she was swimming back and forth in there. And to me, that was like playing hopscotch on the freeway, you know, um, not only that she did it, but she did it drunk and, She was just in such denial of the danger that she was in. Uh, And also, I think probably had kind of a death wish, you know, like didn't have regard for her life or her safety. So some of those stories were just bone chilling. And yet I think every one of us has a moment like that in our life, whether we tell it or not, Mm -hmm. Um, whether we even acknowledge it. Sometimes it's buried deep and it's really too painful for us to excavate and we don't need to excavate it. If we don't want to, we don't need to trot it out for the world in order for it to have value and meaning. Um, Mm. but I just think there's these moments where we get a glimpse of these, these pivot points in people's lives that are either, you know, they might be something that's turned them that has gone bad for them or something that's turned them away and, and gone well, but always these moments of pivot are just so poignant and, 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 um, meaningful. And they've stayed with me. I feel like they kind of are stored in my cells because I got to be part of, of that person sharing their story. I love that. Thank you
1: for sharing those. Oh man. It's been, it's been fun going back through, but even at the end where you were trying to come through, how many hours of footage and trying to pinpoint, you know, pull highlights from episodes. Um, That just made my head hurt to even think about it. Um, (laughs) you You guys did a great job and getting the farewell from the hosts and the different people. And, and I don't know, I just, I thought it was awesome. So my, um, I want you to explain before I ask a specific question about it, will you get into the concept about your new book, take good care? Um, just sort of yeah. like the style of it and what it, what it is.
0: So when I started writing that book, I thought, you know, I was editing 350 hours of bubble hour audio down to, to like a 10 part, 10 hour, um, final season Mm -hmm. recapping a decade. Uh, It was a ton of work, but I thought, okay, I've got 10 great hours, but I'm leaving 340 hours of great content behind too. So Mm -hmm. I thought, well, maybe I could do a daily devotional kind of book, you know, a daily reading with all of these great moments and uh, things I've learned from guests. But when I started compiling it, I thought, you know, the limitation of a daily reading where it's like, this is what you read on this day was trying to pick like the exact right reading for that day. And then you have things like holidays that are religious holidays. And how do you acknowledge other religions or, you know, what do you put on um, Christmas day? That's going to mean the same thing to someone who celebrates Christmas religiously as someone who doesn't celebrate it at all. uh, Or for someone who's an entirely different faith that, you know, maybe on that day they feel kind of like, oh, this day is always about this thing, you know? So I thought, <laughs> yeah, okay.
1: yeah,
0: doing, th- doing a, a, that type of a book, I realized had limitations. And what I really wanted was to spark conversation with the reader. So I set it up so that, uh, there's, there's fewer chapters and, um, but I invite you to revisit them three times. So every time you read a a little story, which is just a couple pages, it's the idea is to give you an idea and to spark your response. And so I ask you to mark it off. There's three boxes. So tick it off each time you come to it. And at the end, I ask you a question and I ask you to record your response. So, you know, we might talk about, um, Connection. And I and at the end, I say, you know, who are the people who support you in your recovery or who you look to for support in your recovery? And the thing is that you're going to feel differently six months from now than you feel now. Mm-hmm. So when you read that again, and write your answer, there's there's a space to write your answer for each of the three times that you visit a chapter. And what I want people to see is how we change over time and how we grow. Sometimes we read something and I think, oh, I don't get it. Like, um, I don't know if you read the big book, you might read something in the big book and you're like, I don't know why everybody loves this story. It doesn't mean anything to me. And then suddenly a year from now, you might read it and go like, that blows my mind. Like now it means something. Yeah, but sometimes the opposite happens too where we read something or we hear something and it really resonates and knocks our socks off. But then we use it to change ourselves and down the road we realize like I can't even remember why I used to like this so much. It's like this seems kind of basic. And mm-hmm. it's good to record that too because then we realize you know not that the thing was never meaningful but that you have grown so much that this is now just part of how you roll. So it becomes a book that is, it it just continues the conversation and it takes the storytelling of the guests becomes a conversation between me and the reader becomes a conversation between the reader and themselves.
1: And it's so cool. Cause I've never seen anything like this. I have a ton of daily readers. I have book regular books. I have all kinds of things, but like it's, It's just a really cool exercise in how we evolve, how we grow, or even on a certain day, if I read something, depending on the weather or my mood or what's going on in my day, maybe my interpretation is completely different just based on those types of my internal weather, you know? Um, And so having this being asked to revisit something and a couple of my favorites on page 12, there's one called being held Um, and, you know, talking about creating that space for people um, and, You know, allowing other people to hear your innermost thoughts and why that would be helpful in recovery. Um, And I remember I felt very attacked by it and I felt suspicious. Like I didn't like that in the beginning. And now um, I do because I have more trust. I have more trust in myself. And I also, it's like, it's weird to watch how these things have changed. And then one of my, probably my favorite, I don't know, I can't say half have a favorite because they're all good. And Another thing I love about it is that all of this is from your guests. Yeah. There's stories that come from snippets of the, your guests, as well as your, the other book, uh, Unpickled, where there's quotes and examples and scenarios from all these different people, and you can tell yeah. just by their filters and experiences that that the way they've interpreted it is just so different. Um, yeah. But I love that because you really do make it about your guests. But my favorite one, one of my favorites, is called "Pin the Age," and it's on page twenty-four. Um, and my question for you is, when when the last time you used this technique was? Um, because you, it, it prompts you to ask, "How old do I feel right now?" Right. Yeah. When you're having a reaction, you're observing your reaction or your feeling towards something of, of, to pin the age and to kind of help, I guess, put it in perspective around that. Do you ever use that for yourself? I use it
0: all the time. All the time. It's so
1: brilliant.
0: Yeah. I, it's not, it's definitely didn't come from me. You know, I'm I kind of see myself as an aggregator, you know, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, and and I'm a good communicator. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm not a psychologist or anything, but I'm really good at sweeping together concepts and then making them, packaging them in a way that's easy to use for other people. Right. So that concept is is something that um I I heard in therapy, but I also heard it at the dinner table at a recovery retreat, and. Um, when you are feeling a certain way, when you're feeling like really upset, really emotional or really uncomfortable with another person, if you just ask yourself, it has to be a gut feeling, like don't overthink it. How old do I feel right now? Like how old is that voice right now? That's telling me, you know, that person is mean or I'm bad, or this is yucky. Like sometimes it's coming from a really young place, you know? Um, sometimes it's, it'll help you kind of understand where that wound is coming from. And it always shocks me. Like when I feel that way, when I think I'm feeling really grumpy, like what, where's this coming from? I can tell right away. I feel 15, I feel 12, I feel seven. And as soon as I do that, I can pinpoint, you know, this is about feeling bullied or this is about feeling maybe, um, not good about my body, um, feeling, uh, scared, abandoned, like it, it can really help you kind of pair back to it. And then what we really, again, it's a call for comfort, right? So yeah. when we go and we tend that part of ourselves, and we we realize that, you know what, maybe I'm not actually in danger right now, or maybe I'm not being abandoned right now, but there's a part of my heart that feels like it, that needs some love and needs some comfort, And drinking isn't going to help that part feel better. That's just going to push the pause button and I'm going to, it's going to come back with a vengeance later, but even just acknowledging it. And it's kind of a warning signal, I guess it gets internalized and, and just needs usually a little bit of acknowledgement. So I use it all the time. It's really helpful. And I think anyone that's kind of got um, a more anxious attachment style, you know, which Definitely makes sense for me. Um, is someone who will find this useful because it's probably c- going back to something from childhood that, or an, another stage that's just reminding you of a time when you were hurt, and you're kind of being you're bracing yourself for it,
1: right? And your mind is trying to protect you. It's not trying to hurt right. you. It's trying to show up and help you. But it feels physiologically maybe like or emotionally you're feeling triggered like something's very wrong. And I think in those states for me, when that state is when I make poor choices, I can't yeah. make poor choices. If I don't have a tool, which is what I love about this, because instantaneously you can check in, ask yourself this question. And the first age that comes to mind that there's something deep in the recesses of your psyche, probably that whatever just happened, bumped up into. <laughs> um, I don't know. I just, it, when I read it, I was like, Oh my God. You know, it's so good. And I remember my sponsor told me one time, like, okay, on a scale of one to 10, what is this? That was her kind of quick, like check-in. Like if I'm about to spin out over something and it's an 11 in my mind, and then I have to ask myself, what is this really though in the real world on a scale of one to 10, not in Amanda's brain, it's, it's a two and it could help me just hold on, hold on, hold on. But this to me is even more profound because it it ties back to a wound that may be having, I may be having a reaction that's more related to that than, than to what's actually going on. And then you go even further, which is go comfort yourself at that age, mm-hmm. go yeah. parent or love on or encourage or whatever you need. To, I don't know. I just, that's, that is huge. So thank you. Thank you for that. Ah, oh, I'm glad that's helpful. Oh, it's awesome. I love it. I'm going to tell all my sponsees and everyone I know about it. (laughs) So on page 124, one of the things you really talk about a lot um, is to start a gratitude practice. And I, you know, I love that you incorporate that. I used to think that anything like that was just woo woo and just like, oh, God, you know, gratitude, you know, because again, I'm logical. I like lists and science and stuff like that. Um, But now we have all this science that shows that gratitude, time in nature, you know, these things actually do can rewire our minds over time if we're consistent. Um, And so what's your gratitude practice? Like, what do you do every day to stay in a state of gratitude?
0: Well, it it shifts, you know, I, I, Mm -hmm. so what I tell you, I'll tell you what I'm doing right now, but know that if someone's listening six months from now, I might be doing something different. Cause I, I'm right. always kind of changing things. But one thing I really like to do, I do a practice called morning pages, which, uh, is an idea from a book called the artist's way, an old, older book by Julia Cameron that looks at ways to sort of tend ourselves with creativity. And what it is, is that you, 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 right before you do anything else in the morning. while well, I make a cup of coffee, but like before you read the news <laughs> or listen to podcasts or talk to people, like before the world gets in, well, it's still just you and yourself, which at one time was a place I never, ever wanted to be. Now mm. I start my day from that place and you write three pages on like, it's like just decluttering your brain. I take it a step further and I write three pages and then destroy them. So a a journal is one thing. Some people want to keep their morning pages because they're using it like a journal. This for me is where I write all the things I feel like I can't say or wouldn't want anyone to hear me say like I'm hurt by so-and-so I'm annoyed by this. I'm worried about this. Um, this I'm ruminating on this dumb thing, like all of this stuff, I can just get it out. And I used to do it with a a pencil and paper and then shred the paper. What I do these days is I do it on my iPad with an Apple pencil and I write it out, which is so fun, you know, on on the iPad. And then I then I change it to the eraser and I erase it all. So it's the mind brain process of handwriting, but then also the release of getting it out. and deleting it. And then it's gone. And I use that as a way to free myself from the stuff that kind of feels like I, it shouldn't stay in there. It's not good stuff to keep, but I usually end it by saying something I'm grateful for, you know, or something I'm looking forward to that day. Um, so that I'm not just ranting and then purging, but I'm also, like transforming it a little bit and then releasing it. And so it's different than just um, thinking about and and like convincing yourself that you're mad. It's a way of actually processing it. And so I think that's why gratitude is so powerful is that it is a way to process. So we're not just um, thinking happy thoughts as a way to bypass. Bad feelings or deny that things maybe need attending. Um, we don't want to do that, like toxic positivity and 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 falseness and fakeness. It's not that. That's not really useful. That's just another way to numb. I think gratitude is really about processing, and um, you know, there's there's always a reason to be grateful, even in hard moments. And mm-hmm. again, not in that easy way out of being like, well, you know, I've got, um, I've got a terminal disease, but other people have a worse, you know, it's not that it's, no. it, it's, it's, you gotta go a little bit deeper than that. And sometimes it's a way to bring us in. So I might think I'm really uneasy right now, but this chair is comfortable, you know? Um, and one thing I do every day, I kind of force myself to do this. I'm 55 and, um, things are changing around here, you know, like (laughs) I'm, I'm I'm happy with how I look. I take good care of myself, but honest to God, every time I turn around, there's like a facial hair in the wrong place, you know, (laughs) or, um, my skin is changing. My body's changing. Like just everything's changing and you can't be too attached to, well, things, but you still have to like take care of yourself. So as I'm getting in the shower, I force myself to look in the mirror at my body as it is and thank it and say like, this body has served me well, this imperfect body. And, you know, sometimes even, you know, we all have parts of our body that we don't like for me, it's kind of hip size stomach, like all the parts that are really changing right now. touch them, like put my hands on my hips and say like, thank you for holding me up, you know, thank you. And so giving gratitude to my body in a really realistic way and just like remembering like, yeah, you know what? Like this, this body has been really good to me and I, I'm, I'm still going, I'm still here. And yeah, just these little things that we can do again, we're coming back into the moment. We're coming back into the reality of where we are. Gratitude is yeah. a really good way to do that.
1: I love that. I love all of those things so much. And just in a lot of meditations, they'll they'll ask you to thank your body, thank your legs, and thank your, thank your heart for pumping all the blood, you know. And just just the what an incredible thing and how much support. Um, so that's a that's a really great reminder. Especially, I don't even want to say especially for women because I think it's probably for all people. Um, but that's yeah. a very that's a very cool um, way to love yourself and be grateful. So can you tell, you know, walk us through, um, a time when you had to grieve, um, without alcohol.
0: There's been a few, um, I've talked and written a lot about, um, my dad's death. And I know you've gone through this recently too. Um, it was a very about hard
1: time. To have, it's about to come up on the anniversary of his death, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. A next week month. from this well, this month. next week. Yeah, this next yeah. week. Um, and I don't I don't think a lot about anniversaries. I know some people really like experience profound grief on the anniversary of the day. Um mm-hmm. I find that I carry it with me all the time. So even though I looked at the calendar as I was kind of writing out my week and thinking, oh gosh, you know, this is the the 11th was the day of his funeral. I remember because it was his birthday. Um, but this kind of seasonally, I guess it, it occurs to me and, oh gosh, I don't want to do another three hours on this for you. <laughs> Let me see if I can be succinct in saying how alcohol, being alcohol free served me well. It was a, it was a very difficult time for me, um, yeah. for every it, it, losing a parent's heart for everybody and we're all, probably all going to have to do it. Um, and it's complicated in its own way for everybody. So it was tough for me because in my particular circumstance, um, I think I was hoping for maybe an acknowledgement or an apology. I had some unfinished business with my dad and he had Parkinson's disease and Towards the end, um, that came along with um, some dementia, delirium. And that meant that um, if he had wanted to have that conversation with me that I so desperately wished we could have had, he really wasn't able to have it anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I not only had to grieve losing the parent, but I was also grieving losing the dream, hope, expectation that I might get some closure on this particular area of pain. And alcohol would have taken the edge off that pain, but it wouldn't have lessened it. It would have just stored it up. So I feel like I showed up authentically through every step of that hard journey. And I was able to be there for him and for my mom and for my sisters and and do my part and play my role because we all kind of helped each other through that. Um, But I was also able to be there for myself and Mm -hmm. I felt it all in real time and I moved through it. I believe more efficiently because I wasn't constantly numbing out and abandoning the process by using alcohol to stop what I was feeling. So I feel like it served me very well. And this is, this is what Glennon Doyle calls brutal, like the brutal truth of recovery, meaning beautiful, Ooh. but also brutal is that when we stop numbing our bad feelings, yeah, we do feel them. We have to do the hard stuff on, uh, on, on, numb, (laughs) but we also stop numbing the good feelings. Yeah. So I had the two things in balance. Yes. I was feeling the pain of grief more, but I also was sober so that I could feel the good things more and I could feel the healing more and I could move through it all more. And I feel like that's I'm not special in that way. I'm not smarter than anybody else. This is just how humans respond to sobriety and recovery. So for me, grief is real and raw and profound. And it's not over six years later. I still feel grief, but also I feel the healing. Um, I'm grieving from a different place than where you're grieving from right now, having more recently lost your dad. And, um, we don't need to rush that, but we need to keep feeling if we're going to move on and grow. And so here's the thing for the longest time, when I was out for walks and my dad would come to mind, I would actually swear at him and say, get the F away from me right now. I don't want to think about you. I'm enjoying my walk. You don't get to come on this walk with me. I'm still mad at you. And I get to still be mad. And then at some point, you know, I could say, okay, you get five minutes. I'm going to listen to you. And so I I don't think that I, I don't, I don't have a belief system that makes me feel like he's with me. And this is an actual conversation to me. This is healing that's taking place in my mind and my heart. But some people, their belief system might be that that's, that is a real conversation. So respectfully for whatever people believe, I think it allows me to show up in that relationship. And so even though I didn't get what I wanted in terms of healing that relationship before he died, I have had some healing and c- expect it to continue to heal. I have room, I have capacity for continued right. healing. And to me, that's one more reason to stay sober, you know, yeah. is so that we yeah. can keep growing and healing in this way. So I, yeah. I hope that gives, uh, a message of hope to you and to anybody who's feeling pain, um, whether it's grief or other from other sources. Um, yeah. because, Yeah, we we move through.
1: And that's beautiful. And I'm so glad that you were able to show up for your family and and for yourself. Um, That's amazing. And also that you got to you're getting to move through it. Um, Because if we were drinking during this, all we would be doing is just staying right there. And so 12 years could go by and then you get to feel it. Guess what? You get to start back at the beginning, but you're actually getting to move through it and heal faster because the pain yeah. demands to be felt, right? It's inevitable. It's coming whether and it
0: morphs. It, yeah. If, it, and if it, you it don't does. feel it, it'll pop up somewhere else. You said whack-a-mole earlier, right? So yes. it, it does like, it just, it's so funny. Our brains have a way of being heard one way or another.
1: <laughs> so on that note, um, how did becoming alcohol-free change your parenting?
0: Well, my kids were, uh, all teenagers and, above when i quit drinking and my oldest had just gotten married um and i really i think that might have been one of the big catalysts for quitting was because i thought oh my gosh he's married now if they have a baby i can't babysit it i'm drunk all the time like even if nobody knows i know i i i cannot babysit a child and drink the way i'm drinking like i hate i hate the fact that a child would get in the way of the alcohol that I need to be me, you know? And also, um, and also if they found out how much I drank while I was babysitting, they would be really upset. So I thought this is a reason for me to be sober so I can show up for my family. And then um, my kids were, yeah, they were all like, the youngest was 14 and then 16 or 17, 18, 19. So my oldest got married quite young but he's still married. So that worked out good. Um, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> so I was, I was, I have three boys, we have three boys. And, um, so they were older teenagers at the time. So in some ways, um, it was really good because it's a time when as a mom, you know, your relationship is always kind of changing, but I was really kind of trying to find my place in their life at that time. And, um, I think it's just allowed me to kind of be really present for them and really mindful of the kind of relationship I want to have with them. And they're all married now. And I feel like I'm, I feel really good about my role in the family and not that I'm perfect and not that everybody has to bow at my feet and listen to uh, me as I, you know, offer them wisdom, but that, um, that I can just be really intentional and kind and wise and humble. And, um, thank God I got over this idea that I always needed to be right. Uh, that's really, that is really, uh, not great. (laughs) (laughs) Adult parent child relationships. If you can, if you can get yourself over that. So I feel like I'm, um, I really love, My role in our family as kind of the matriarch and I have a really beautiful respect and relationship with my daughter-in-laws and with my sons and I'm very intentional I think about how I approach things and you know just yesterday uh, I was with my son and his wife uh, and uh, this particular son and his wife they're both um, 29 28 29 and I overstepped a little because I, 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 uh, reacted emotionally to something and right away, I was able to say, Hey, you guys, thanks for being patient with me. When my emotions are faster than my brain, you know, um, (laughs) I was, I was a little, um, quick to say X, Y, Z, but you know, I, I appreciate your patience with me and I'm, I really want to get this right. And I think that goes a long way. I could not have done that when I was drinking. I just did not have not only the self-awareness, but I feel like I was quite rigid and brittle and scared all the time. And anytime I made a mistake, I wasn't sure if it was because of alcohol. So I would defend and hide and protect my mistakes because I was scared that it would reveal my reliance on alcohol. So now I know if I make a mistake, it's just a mistake and yeah. it's not a big deal. Or if it is a big deal, then I can attend to it, but I don't have all this other garbage around it. Cause that's really messy.
1: Yeah. Wow. I love that. That's, it's so practical. This is like everything that you write and put out into the world. It's just so practical, anecdotal, real world examples of, of, you know, that self-awareness and, and, uh, and knowing, knowing that we're just people, right. You don't have to hide or hide behind alcohol or that's why I made mistakes or whatever. It's just like, no, that's just who that's just being human, you know, and your honesty about that. Okay. Final question. Um, Please tell us about tiny bubbles. Ah, uh, okay. So. I am like, I was so sad when I heard the bubble hours going away. I was like, Oh my God, what? No, why? Where is she? What's she going to do? What's going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> and then I, was, I heard tiny bubbles. I was like, okay, thank God. So please tell us about it. You know, what's the story? What's going on? Where can we find it? All the good stuff.
0: So, um, I wanted to end the bubble hour on a high note. Yeah. I wanted to end it while it was still good. And while I felt good about doing it. And I just kind of felt like it had run its course. It was good. It was, I was losing an, um, kind of energy for it. So I was kind of ready to move on. But I, again, felt like, gosh, I have all of these great hours and hours of material and all of these like snippets of things. And they kind of come full circle, you know, like there'll be like an, a news story from today that, about, I don't know, like uh, last month it was, um, I'm in Canada and our government here announced that they were looking at putting warning labels on alcohol and that two drinks a week is, is, um, the, you know, healthy drinking guidelines, but none is better. You know, that was a big news story. That was a big splash warning, warning labels on alcohol. And I thought I want to be able to take Older bits of conversations that still resonate and weave them in with like news bits from today or new books that are coming out. Um, so, Tiny Bubbles is a 15 minute version of the bubble hour where I talk about something that's happening today and then pull a couple of uh, clips from past interviews, just like, you know, kind of the best bits of the bubble hour. And right. we just don't always have an hour to listen to things. So, sometimes yes you know, you're just driving to work and you're like, oh, I've got this happening today. And I just, I need a little boost of encouragement. So this was the idea was that I could just make short, uh, quick episodes, uh, quick for me to make, because as you know, doing a regular podcast is a boatload of work. Listeners, if you're listening to an hour podcast that's done weekly, like that person you're listening to has worked a lot more than an hour to make that podcast. It worked several hours or more. So, um, this way, this is just like a little more efficient for me to make. So I thought I've left up the archives. There's hundreds of hours of bubble hour stuff to listen to, but this is just like a fresh little remix and yeah. So just they're 15 minutes or less and it's just like a little burst and it's, it's wherever you get podcasts. So it's on all the usual places. So just search tiny bubbles. And you'll find it. You can go to hour.com. I've got links there too. But it's it's a way for me to kind of keep my hand in and kind of keep connected with listeners and right. keep the conversation going, but at a pace that feels sustainable for me at this point in my life now. Right,
1: right. That's amazing. I'm glad you didn't kind of exit the scene completely because I know how important you are and your work is to so many uh, so many people. But... Um, I just, I want to thank you again for, for joining and for being willing to talk about all these things. And, um, it's been enlightening and I, I just, I feel so lucky. Like I cannot believe it, you know? Um, and you're so calming, you have such a calming presence and such a practical application of the things that you've learned and things that have worked for you, um, and I would like to close this out, by the way, I will put, um, all the links for, you know, the blog and you can get all of the, uh, jeans books on Amazon. So I'll put those links in as well. Um, you're on Instagram at the bubble hour. Is that where tiny bubbles lives too? Or does tiny bubbles have its own, uh, hand? I didn't make a separate Instagram for tiny okay. bubbles. That's what I thought. Um, it's all the same. It's all together. Yeah. Okay. So it's the, the bubble
0: so I wanted to I just know. close this out. Go ahead. Oh, I just saw oh, a tiny know. Instagram. Thought you I know, there's only so many <laughs> handles we need.
1: I, I literally just started an Instagram page the other day for the podcast. And I'm like, what? Oh, another thing to learn. You know, it's just, it's yeah. a lot. So I wanted to read your poem um, called The Pivot and it's on page 137 in Unpickled. But it's probably, is it also in the
0: Ember Ever There? I would assume since no, I wrote it after that. Yeah, I wrote it after that, so I included it here. Yeah, okay. So it says the pivot. Set it down.
1: It doesn't serve you. Your arms are aching, cramped and sore. You're so accustomed to this burden, believing less will hurt you more. Your true purpose is long forgotten. Enmeshed unwilling to a bitter call. In fearing death or certain ruin, you've reached the point of stand or fall. This is your day. This is your moment. This is your life. This is your heart. Take back your freedom. Reclaim your strength. It's time to quit. It's time to start. I barely made it through. I'm sorry. (laughs) I practiced this without crying several times. And I was like, you're never going to do it. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well,
0: Thank that still you gives so much. Goosebumps. It still gives me goosebumps. That is a precious moment. The moment we make that pivot. Mm-hmm. And um, I honor huge. all of us that are walking in it, but I also honor your listeners that have yet to get there. Sometimes I think people listen to recovery podcasts feeling like, ashamed that they're still struggling. Mm-hmm. And, um, I just, I just, you know, want to send love to that person or those yes. people, cause you're not alone. Um, that moment awaits you. And it's, a, it's a glorious moment when we make that pivot and turn things around. Absolutely. Thank you so much.